life I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. On the road again. Going places that I've never been. Seeing things that I may never see again. And I can't wait to get on the road again. On the road again. Like a man in Gypsy, we go down the highway. We're the best of friends. Insisting that the world can turn in our way. In our way. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by Jim Kernel, and this is the Arms Race, episode 419 on the network. It's a little Willie Nelson right there. Uh, I'm not a huge Willie Nelson fan, not to say that I don't like him, but on the road again, that always reminds me of baseball, minor league baseball, times riding the buses and, and uh, just constantly being on the go. And I love his, uh, I, th- I think his premise for songwriting kind of mirrors what we do on our network here. He always says, how do you make a song? Four chords in a story, no more complicated than that. And I think sometimes we make baseball, not us, but the people out there making baseball a little bit more complicated than it has to be. And that's why we're lucky to have you on this show, Jim, with the arms race here. So welcome back to your show. Thank you very much. Um, it was uh, eight degrees last week, and I'm looking out the window, and it's a balmy 35. So we're we're moving towards uh, early, late winter, early spring here. <laughs> I'm hitting 70 today, so I won't, uh, <clears throat> I won't rub it in with that. So we... Um, we're gonna. We're not gonna do the, the the long ad reads today, but we are gonna promote our Jaw Bats here. Jaw Bats, newest bat that is uh, gonna be certified from Major League Baseball at checkout. If you want Jaw Bats or any of their apparel, great maple maple wood bats, uh, great finish on them, tremendous artwork. My son Tanner's using it. Jeff Fry hit a double down in uh, on his first at bat down there in Red Sox fantasy camp. So it must work. So Jaw Bats, go to their website. Two great guys running that company. Um, all of our, all of our hosts are going to be, uh, sponsored by jaw bats, uh, by the end of the week. So we're excited to partner with them, get a discount. Uh, I think it's 20% at checkout. Use RVG, all caps, RVG. will get you your discount with jaw bats. And again, great maple bats and they have a lot of good apparel too. So with that, uh, interesting show notes this week, we go from, uh, a dispute over, uh, a speed mechanism to your your analytics, uh, a nice t- nice uh, analytic formula you made up. I think it's a great judgment of performance. But uh, let's start with our always. We have always friendly emailers, DM people, text messengers. But uh, you got an interesting message regarding uh, the jugs gun versus the was it the jugs versus the radar? Uh, speed gun versus drug gun. Speed yes. gun. Okay. Yeah. Let's. Uh, <laughs> Let's un- unpack that one for everybody. Yeah, re- real briefly, because I want to address this and, and clear this up so there's no confusion. I, uh, I got an email from a gentleman, uh, which I appreciated because I misquoted and I mixed the uh, mixed up the speed gun with the jugs gun. Uh, and I spoke of the jugs gun being the first gun crossing the plate where they uh, gauge velocity. Um, so um, I apologize for that. Uh, th- I thank the listener for uh, sending me the email. Um but I'm going to start with um, the, the larger, the, the broader topic here, which I've addressed. And this is from a, um, a uh, from a uh, organization. And I'll read the quote. Um, the moment a baseball leaves a pitcher's hand, it starts to slow down because of drag. 100 miles an hour pitched measured, <clears throat> 100 mile an hour pitch measured at 100 out of the pitcher's hand would be 99, say at 50 feet. 94 midway or 91 crossing the plate. Um, 
and which would decrease, obviously, based on atmospheric pressure. That's why you probably would have a different mile um, MPH reading in Colorado, but that's the only exception. Um, so the reality is, as I talked about, my concern is that the, um, the readings that are being quoted um, only represent what's being, out of the, what's being um, tracked out of the hand versus 30, 40 years ago, which was anywhere from crossing the plate to five feet in front of the plate to 10 feet in front of the plate. Uh, there, I'm, I'm not going to get into, uh, you know, get nitpicky there. Um, but uh, that the reality is, regardless of whether it's the jugs gun first or the speed gun first, it doesn't change uh, my concern of the reality uh, from uh, how they're measuring uh, velocity. And just quickly, uh, the, the radar gun evolution for people who might be interested was the first gun was a speed gun developed by Decatur. Uh, and then next came the jugs gun. Um, so the speed gun became the slower gun. Uh, the stalker came out. So the jugs gun became the slower gun. Next came the Stalker Pro 2. Next came pitch FX system around 2010, which measured 50 feet from home plate, uh, which meant 10 feet, 10 feet from the pitcher's hand. And then if and you fast forward today and you have StatCast reading out of the hand. Um, and StatCast uses malax, maximum velocity um, based on uh, what's logged by TrackMan. So, you know, and as the article in the um, concludes with this statement, so when you read of 85 to 90 mile an hour fastballs from the early 1980s, late 70s, realize they would be registering much faster with the current measurement tech. An 85 mile per hour fastball if registered by a speed gun at the plate would be roughly 93. If measured by StatCast out of the pitcher's hand, it would be roughly 9% difference. So I think that, you know, um, once again, um, want to just clear that up. Um, I, I certainly want to be uh, exact and, and clear in, in the information I give out there. Um, but um, I just thought it was important to address that. I thank the reader once again, for, the listener once again, for sending me that. And um, what would be interesting in relationship to this, and I'll just add this. In 2022, I did a, a study of the pictures on the IL. And I just took, let's just take May. There were 117 pitchers in the month of May that were on the IL. Their average fastball velocity, okay, was the following. 90, pitch, 90 miles an hour or less, there were six pitchers. 91, there were eight pitchers. 92, there were six pitchers. 93, there were 18 pitchers. 94, there were 28. 95, there were 20. 96, there were 11. And 97 plus, there were 20. Now, if you do the math, which we've talked about, and only at a 6% difference, you would recognize that 40 years ago, those pitchers were throwing anywhere from 87 to 93, 94 miles an hour, uh, which to me doesn't really uh, demonstrate uh, high heat. Um, sorry there, Chris Russo. So uh, getting back to my overall conversation, uh, if it's not velocity that's causing the injuries, there has to be another reason for the injuries. And as I talked about before, to me, it always comes down to how you throw the baseball. Um, Dave, one more point about velocity, because I saw this and I really don't pay too much attention to the Twitter feeds and that. But in, in Googling this and looking at different articles about the increase in velocity out of the hand versus closer to the plate, uh, there was an article where Bill James was talking about the different radar guns he saw and how they increased the, you know, the velocity readings based on getting closer to the plate. And I saw all the Twitter responses or the responses online that said, oh, they're definitely throwing harder. 
they're all bigger and they're all faster. They're all stronger, right? They got to be throwing harder. And I go, okay, okay, that's a nice anecdotal comment. But I go, okay, if they're all bigger and stronger, why are they only throwing five innings and going to the shower? Um, I would imagine that, once again, we talk about common sense and logic. If the pitchers today are bigger and stronger than the pitchers 45 years ago, well, if Fergie and company were averaging 20 to 25 complete games a year, I would think then you'd probably be somewhere between 25 to 32 complete games a year, right? Bigger and stronger. If um, if they were throwing, say, anywhere as average from 250 to 300 innings, right? I would think today, hey, bigger and stronger, they'd be averaging anywhere from 275 to 325 innings. So I don't necessarily think that bigger and stronger is the answer. Um, and, and, and regarding velocity, I'll just wrap this up. Velocity is a DNA. Okay, it's a gift. Um, if you throw 84, uh, I'm sure that you can do some fundamental strength and conditioning exercises and work on your technique and probably get to 86, 87, maybe. Um, but you're not getting to 98. Right. So when when we talk about velocity um, and, and, and bigger, stronger, uh, there's a lot of hurlers out there and a lot of I played with who were 5'10", 175, who could throw the ball through the wall. Uh, and if it was all about strength and weight uh, and, and, and uh, size, uh, then you'd have every lineman in the NFL would be throwing 120 miles an hour. And that's just not the case. Yeah, uh, they're, they're strong, but they're not strong in the right way. They're not strong in the throwing motion or in the hitting motion. That's the biggest misnomer going on out there. The good good news is you've got you've got engaging an engaging audience. So um, the interesting part of our of audiences in general is, you know, are they going to be glasses half empty or glasses half full? So hopefully, hopefully he threw you a couple of compliments in there because you've had a great run so far with your your early shows. And but I think that that it's funny that that uh, concept will come up later in our show here, that glass is half empty, glass is half full concept as it comes to Blake Snell in an article that you read. But you came up with an interesting, uh, I've got an analytics background I taught myself, and then I went back to school after the fact to get that useless piece of paper so that I could be branded in that regard. So I would be you know, thought of in a different light as a consultant uh, by a certain faction of baseball but uh, and basketball. But uh, you you made up an analytic uh, in uh and, and join the party here. What, talk to that a little bit. What was the, what prompted it? What is it? Kind of break it down for our audience. Here. Uh, well, let's back up. What, what prompted it was, um, you know, we've been talking about um, and speaking to different analytics in the game where um, I was asking questions about based upon my research. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't use the word. I don't agree. I don't understand the value they're giving uh, to these analytics per the pitcher's performance and their value. So I saw one this week and that kind of precipitated my thought about, gee, if I was a general manager, uh, what analytics would I feel was important? But here's the analytic of the week that I saw that's being introduced. I saw it was an article on MLB.com and I'll quote, "Um, here's one new way to see who throws the nastiest pitches in baseball. Look at the pitchers who generated the most swords on each pitch type. StatCast recently introduced its new swords metric, which uses Hawkeye bat tracking to classify the awkward half swings that a pitcher induces with a particularly nasty pitch. Okay. Make that as a standalone. Okay, fine. Makes some sense. So number one, got 15 swords. 
Michael Kopech, four-seam fastball. That was the highest sword award for four-seam fastball. The article goes on to say that Kopech might have had might have struggled last season. He was five and twelve with a five point four three ERA. Okay, so I'm going. There's a lot more there to look at than besides check swings on a fastball. Um, his four-seamer averaged 95 miles an hour. Uh, and he had a, the article goes on to say he had a very high spin rate of 25, 2,501 RPMs on his uh, fastball. Okay. So a couple points on that. Velocity perspective. Let's go back to the original comment and the conversations we've been having. Let's just say 6%, right? Regardless, they said seven and nine. Let's go 6%. Well, at 6%, that, you know, he toes the rubber 40 years ago. He's at 90, okay? 90 is, is no big deal. Um, it's kind of like an average, a little above average fastball. More importantly, uh, the uh, writer talks about his spin rate on a fastball, 2,500. Well, that comes out to 20 revolutions to the plate, okay? And his ERA was 5.45. Kershaw was number 40 in my study, as far as fastball spin rate at 23.24, that comes out to roughly 19 revolutions to the plate. Okay. So if we're going to talk about spin rate, and I don't want to rehash this topic, but we're going to make a big deal that um, Kopech's fastball revolves one more time than Kershaw, but yet his ERA was three points higher. Once again, I think that um, as a standalone statistic, possibly has some merit, but if you look at the big picture and want to tell the entire story, there's a lot more to look at. Okay. So this is what I would ask. Okay. <laughs> if I was going to evaluate and I'm, I'm not, I'm not picking on the writer because obviously the writer's reporting and, and, and talking about a, a new, new analytic and how it applies to COPAC in this respect. But the first question I asked would, would, would ask is this four seamer appears to be a, a really mighty sword, right? Well, does he have command with it? Number two, does he have command of his slider and change? Or is he often behind in the count and needs to throw a 2-0 fastball? And since everybody is big on exit velocity, I'd like to know what the exit velocity was on all his dull swords, those four seamers who didn't quite have that cutting edge. Um, and once again, we look at in the context of what was his performance is this something that you could really look at to value and see how it contributed to his performance? Or is it just another analytic that they're throwing out there uh, without looking at it in context of all the other performance uh, issues that uh, constitute being a successful pitcher? Um, but the number one analytic for me, as I since he brought up Kopech, would be um, Kopech had term Tommy John surgery in 2018. And I researched his throwing motion. I did this earlier on a video, but I researched his throwing motion prior to and after Tommy John. They are almost identical. The only thing he does now is he has a little more of a back leg collapse. But as far as his lower half ball timing and his arm leg, nothing has changed at all. But I will offer that the only thing that really has changed is that he got a haircut. Yeah. I, you know, I'm glad people are thinking. I don't know that adding another analytic formula and dividing, and we talked last episode about the difference between a puzzle and a mystery. A puzzle has a finite number of pieces, and you can cut that puzzle up into 80 pieces, 1,000 pieces. It's still going to come up you know, with the same 
picture at the end. And uh, although maybe has a different haircut in it, like you mentioned with Snell, but no, nobody's no, nobody's treating the game of baseball like a mystery and it can't be put into a little box. Everything has a context to it. So, um, and that was my misunderstanding. I thought, I thought you came up with sword. Um, oh but- no, I'm sorry. I have a couple other ones. I apologize. No, that was yeah. something that kind of uh, piqued my curiosity because I read it and I go, I, I, I'm trying to understand why. I wonder if it was named after Morgan Sword for the uh, as the commissioner's right hand man. That's the uh, I, I, to get I, his I, attention. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I just find that it, I found the explanation to be rather curious, and the actual uh, facts to be curious in light of Copac's um, performance. Now, be honest with you, right? In, in, in respect to Copac or any pitcher, any pitcher I work with, if they have some tools. And they show that they have the ability to execute some pitches or whatever, whatever tools they have, whether it's spin rate or whatever. I go, okay, that tells me there's some potential ceiling. But the other butt of that, the other butt, which you have talked about, there's always a butt in the conversation. I want to know what's preventing him from maximizing those swords. Or I'd like to know as a pitcher, when I evaluate a pitcher, what's preventing that pitcher from maximizing his spin rate. Because if, in my perspective, a throwing motion is not there or the balance isn't there or the conditioning is not there or whatever those factors are, that sword, those swords and that spin rate um, have little impact on his performance and his value. So we've talked about this is that those are never standalone, can't be standalone analytics. Uh, they can't be standalone statistics. They have to look, be incorporated into how does it impact performance? Is it impacting performance? And if it's not impacting performance, in the case of Kopech, who is five and twelve with a five point four eight ERA, why is it not? Okay, um, there's could be a variety of factors. Personally, from my perspective, um, I think it starts with, you know, his throwing motion. But that's you know that's just my personal belief based on all the research I've done and um, how I see that the throwing motion not only impacts arm health, but it impacts performance and command and movement. Um, and we talked about that before, so there's no reason to rehash that. Yeah. So, so a sword, it, it, it basically induces a check swing. Is that? Yeah, I guess, I guess they're looking at, you know, if, if you're, if your fastball has some movement and you got some life on your fastball, Nobody's able to get a good swing on the ball, okay, which, you know, a good cut on the ball. I, I would imagine it's like having a filthy curveball. You got to check swing. I would imagine that's what, they, that's what they're speaking to. Um, but if your ERA is 5.48, um, that sword um, is not really helping your performance. So there's got to be other reasons why he can't take advantage, right? You want to take advantage of the tools and the skills and the DNA you have, Right. Um, so in this particular situation, there's many other there are other factors that need to be identified so that Copac can utilize that sword rate or those 15 swords and get his ERA down under three. Because to me, that would be a pitcher who has value and is performing well or up to his ability. Can you imagine the jumbled mess that is a pitcher's brain right now going out there with all these things in their head? On the other side of it, as a as a hitter. We've all checks. We've all had a check swing at some time or a sword uh, in this case, but usually those are a byproduct of, you know, you get fooled sometimes because the pitch is nasty, but a lot of times it's because you have a poor plan at the plate and you're not up there, you know, looking for your your pitch or spot or don't know who you are as a hitter. 
Um, or you might be looking for a pitch and he throws you something else, right? Yeah, I, I would imagine, you know, I didn't hit. I work with hitters. But I would imagine that the really, really generational hitters just stand up there and go, I got it. Right. I'm sure I'm sure there's some guesswork and I can't speak to what Rod Crew and Tony Gwynn did. But at some point in time, um, you know, it's funny as I work with when I used to when I was coaching, I work with a lot of hitters as well as pitchers. And parents would always say to me, you know, how come my son could become a better hitter? And I go, uh, make sure he learns how to juggle five balls and is a, and, and plays ping pong, because my point was it's 65 percent eye hand coordination and 35% balance and uh, stability and strength, right? And I'm sure there's people that might disagree with that, but I played with a lot of people who were not even close to being athletic, who were really good hitters because they had phenomenal eye-hand coordination and they could get the bat to the ball. Good uh, balance, so. good hand-eye. And then I yeah. watched the video with Tony Gwynn and Ted Williams. I think Bob Costas was doing the interview and real simple asked, Ted Williams and Ted Williams passed it to Tony Gwynn, who like who looked like a nervous schoolboy answering the question, but around his idol. But they both had the same answer. And Roger Horns, Rogers Hornsby told Ted Williams. Ted Williams passed it on. Balance, hand, eye, just get a good pitch to hit. Understand know who you are. So no, I yeah. like that. I think that's got to be a, a thing. We should probably have an analytics of the week here, and uh, and uh, and go after it. So you had you had a you had an article you read, and this kind of what I was getting at with the with the uh, the guy who wrote into you. Um, on the email, glasses half empty, glasses half full. Um, I think it kind of probably took you to Blake Snell here. There, there's an article that revolves around how we should be evaluating Blake Snell, what should, we should look at, what some people are going to be looking at. You know, is he is it the glasses half full where it's, it's innings pitched or the glasses half empty where it's innings not pitched? I guess that's the... Yeah, um, yeah. before we do that, can I just kind of share, we were, we were talking before and we kind of reversed the order, but um, if, if I was a GM... The analytics that I would be find interesting. Oh, we, yeah. Sorry, we skipped that. Go ahead. So anyway, so, you know, and, and these analytics to me speak to performance. Uh, there are some analytics that speak to tools. Uh, as I said, they're they're part of the story. But I would like to know um, what the pitcher actually is doing from a performance level. So the first one, the first one I'd like to see would be shutdown. What percentage of the times does the pitcher shut the opposing team down the next half inning? after his team puts runs on the board, okay? I've always talked about that, even at the high school level. Um, if your team goes out and three or four runs, you want to shut that other team down, one, two, three, come back into the dugout. Even on the professional level, you see pitchers, after their team has scored two or three runs, kind of get a little relaxed and give up two or three runs. So I want to know who's got the, uh, the ability and, and to get on the mound and go, you know what? You gave me a lead, I'm going to hold it, right? So... The next step is kind of a uh, acceleration of that. It's I'd like to look at shutdown plus. How many times has the pitcher given up the lead after his team has tied the score or gone ahead? And this one is really significant to me because it goes back to what I look at the quality start. You know, um, I, I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago, I read an article where a writer was saying he's had, you know, this pitcher's had 50 or 10 or 12 quality starts in a row. And I'm going, okay. So I looked at the scores. Well, if your team is winning one nothing, and you give up three runs in the fifth inning, and somebody and you walk, you know, you're taken out of the game, your team is losing three to one. That's the same quality start as if your team is 
it's zero zero and you gave up three runs or your team scored five runs and gave up three runs. There's a big difference there as far as the ability to pitch to the game and give your team the opportunity to win. So, um, you know, those those both come down to me as far as can the pitcher stop the other team's momentum? Because to me, that's an important value when I look at a pitcher um, as opposed to just what his spin rate is or what is uh, what his uh, how many swords he has with a pitch. Okay, this one also I like to see is I call pick them up. The number of errors the pitcher's team has during the season or makes during the season with two outs and how many runs the pitcher allows after the errors. And this is a really big one for me in that everybody makes errors. Okay, pitchers walk, you know, it's going to happen in a game. But you see quite often when they talk about a pitcher's outing, they'll go, well, he only had three earned runs. The shortstop booted the ball and he gave up five runs after that or four runs after that. I'm going, okay, you you still had the ball in your hand. The shortstop made an error, which they will make. But your job is to say, turn around and go, I got you. I'm going to pick you up, shut the next batter out, strike him out, get back in the dugout. Okay, I want to know once again, does the pitcher have the ability to say, I got this right here? Okay, last one. We see this one also. I like that. I call it wins plus and minus. When the pitcher is taken out, how often is the team winning or losing? And I spoke to that before about giving up three runs when the score is one nothing or giving up two or three runs when the score is four. Your team has scored four runs. Okay, does the pitcher have the ability to pitch to the score? They always talk about uh, a team, a, a, a pitcher's winning percentage. And then they follow that with the team's winning percentage when he started. Well, if a pitcher gives up five runs and is taken out after the fifth inning and his team scores six runs in the eighth to get a win, that would come, that would be part of the statistics that said the team won the game when this pitcher started. But I don't look at that as a quality start, and I don't think that's something that speaks to the value of the pitcher. So those are just four that I came up with, that if I was a general manager, if I was evaluating a pitcher, I would like to know what his statistics were and what the analytics were for this pitcher with those four particular points I just picked up this book too. No, fair point. I, I moved you forward a little quicker. I'm glad you got that, that information out there to our audience. Um, are you ready to go on to the article now? Sure, I, I, like yeah, the article. Yeah. I think it fits in well to what you were saying. And I guess I got too excited to, to chat about that. Uh, but Blake Snell, you had an art, you saw an article about Blake Snell you thought was yeah. worth. Yeah. I thought it'd be fun. Uh, every week I kind of peruse, as I mentioned, uh, I look at the, uh, sports, uh, section of the New York post. I look at the athletic, I look at MLB.com. And I want to see uh, what writers are writing about pitchers, prospective free agents, signings. I want to see what uh, and read about what executives are, uh, what they have to say about certain pitchers. Right. And uh, there was an article in Atlantic in the in the athletic. I'm sorry. And it was about Blake Snell. And the quote in the article was uh, but in an era when starters pitch deep in <clears throat> few starters pitch deep into games. Some team will value the inning Snell pitches and not worry about the ones he doesn't, right? So that's fair. I mean, that's that's pretty much um, how we look at it and how I would imagine general manager viewing it. Uh, if they're talking about giving Blake Snell five, six, seven years at $150, $200 million, 
Um, but it goes back to the quality start and it goes back to the research I did last that I spoke to last week when I took the top five team ER the top five teams and their ERA in the Major League Baseball last year, and I took the bottom five teams, their ERA. Okay. And what the difference was, I looked at the first their top five starters for each of those teams, how many innings they logged in total. So it, it varied from the max was the Mariners, whose five starters, I'm sorry, the Blue Jays, whose five starters totaled 57% of the innings, all the way down to the Athletics and the Rockies, whose starters totaled 41% and 37% of the innings. So I'm looking and going, two questions. One is, if I'm my five top starters are only eating, because they talk about innings eaters if they throw 180 innings, if they're only eating 40% of the innings, that means I got to find other hurlers to eat the other 60%. And that's a ton of innings for my bullpen to eat during the year, which you can see quite often by the end of the year, the bullpen gets exhausted because they always talk about coaches and managers having to, to, to manage their bullpens. Well, they have to manage their bullpens because their starters are only going five innings and throwing 90 pitches. So when it comes down to, you know, whether it's Blake Snell or anybody, I look and I go, okay, I understand the value of the innings he pitches, but it is an analogy because I like to have fun with analogies. That would be like um, re, um, uh, Mahomes going to Andy Reid and Andy going, hey, that was a good quality start. That was a good first half. You threw touch, two touchdown passes. Why don't you just, you know, put the hoodie on and sit in the bench? Or, you know, Josh Allen going and uh, throwing two or three touchdown passes in the first half. And, and uh, McDermott, I think, is his name going, hey, that's, that, you're good. That's, that's, uh, that, that's a good quality start. And uh, we'll save you for, you know, the next game. Um, so to me, it gets back to bigger and stronger. And there's a lot of combinations, there's a lot of factors here. But uh, it's kind of funny that uh, in, 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 from a layman's perspective who watches different sports, Pitchers are the only ones that are getting paid an exorbitant amount of money, an exorbitant amount of money to work half a day. Okay. And that other half a day has got to be picked up. So it was funny. I was giving this some thought the other day. There's, there's solutions to this. And I came up with three. One is you have to um, expand the rosters because if you're looking at starting pitchers throwing less and less, that means there's more innings that have to be eaten up by your relievers. And as we know, as, we, as I just mentioned, that that becomes problematic towards the end of the season. So you need to expand the rosters and add so you can add more relief pitchers. And I go, OK, well, that could be a problem because instead of seven pitching changes or eight pitching changes, now you'll have 14 pitching changes or 12 pitching changes. I go, that's that's maybe not the best solution. Um, the other option is to. Um, have major league pitchers throw more than five innings and throw more than 90 pitches. Uh, but I don't see that happening. Um, so um, I just found it interesting from a uh, cost value standpoint and what major league baseball values. And once again, kind of like with analytics and this writer obviously is just reporting the news, but as a standalone um, issue, you go, okay, five innings. Um, he gave you five quality innings. Um, whatever that number may be, 
but there's a but, and the but is I got every game I got to come up with pitchers who can pitch the other half of the game. Um, so I I wouldn't necessarily personally, if I was a general manager, um, value the quality of the innings without uh, valuing and understanding how many innings can this uh, young man give me um, because it has varied in his career or with similar pitchers who have, you know, um, one or two good years, maybe five or six years ago. And what they'll always do, and I saw this, especially with a couple of pitchers who signed, they'll go, he's an innings eater. He's averaged 180 innings over the last six years. Okay. Well, the problem with that is once again, is you can use any fact you want to tell your story. But for some of those pitchers I looked at, Six or seven years ago, they threw 210, 220 innings, 230 innings. The last couple of years, they've thrown 135, 145, 140, et cetera. So those last three or four years, they're, they're anything but innings eaters. But if you want to average it out, you go, hey, he's averaged 180 innings for the last seven years. So once again, there's more, there's more to statistics than what, you, what somebody individually wants to present. Yeah. We can make numbers say whatever we want. I think I think people have got to understand that. And the, the, the biggest misnomer with when numbers are the lead to an answer is people have to remember, and I go back to the formula, again, not to pick on this poor guy who came up with his own formula or his own analytics, but they are not uh, objective. Numbers are not objective. Analytics are not objective. They are as fallible as the individual who created it. They share the same biases as that individual. So you almost have to do a an audit on, on an analytics formula before it can be used. And you're bringing up a great point. Um, one audit would be, let's take a look at it over a larger sample size, which should be the obvious first one for a, a, a kind of a, an elementary analyst uh, with, with looking at these numbers. So I'm glad you brought up that point. There's so many different ways. And that's what they should do. Put it in the middle, walk around it, create, create the story, pick it apart, pull holes in it. And therein it lies your solution as to how to create pictures. But I, I get concerned Jim, I don't know where you stand on this, but I'm concerned that the the starting pitcher, and we saw some relievers get some big salaries. Josh Hader just got a nice big salary the other day as a as a reliever. They don't know where he's going to be, the closer, the setup guy. But I, I am curiously looking at agents starting the market correction on middle relievers, meaning boosting their salaries, and the market correction on starters, where I think they're gradually pricing themselves lower and lower on the market because, or they're going to anyway, because they're they're not like, as you said, they, they don't even pitch half the day anymore. Well, yeah, you know, it's kind of like the emperor has no clothes on. Um, they continually, no matter what articles you read or talk to, you know, listen uh, and read about executives and, and people that speak to the game and starting pitcher, starting pitching, they talk about how valuable starting pitching is. Okay. Um, but how does that cost value relate to the fact that you're only throwing them five, maybe six innings. I, you know, I mentioned I did the study last year and I looked at starters for three months and they averaged 5.1 innings and threw 90 pitches. So, I, you know, I, I have the first question, why do they need 90 pitches to get through five innings if they're all bigger, stronger, and they're better pitchers? Um, but once again, a separate conversation. Um, but it would appear to me, and I agree with you, that um, if they're looking to um, spread these innings out. So there's many eaters that I would think the sixth, seventh and eighth and ninth inning eaters would, would uh, garner and um, uh, require a higher compensation. Um, because if I'm pitching the seventh and eighth inning 
and you're paying me $6 million a year. And a starting pitcher is pitching five innings and getting $35 million a year. To me, that's a significant imbalance as far as the pay structure is concerned. Um, but once again, you know, it's not my money. I really, I have no comment on that other than I don't understand it. It seems to be an imbalance. Um, if we get to the point where starting pitchers throw four innings, are, are they still going to command seven years and $200 million? Um, but that's up to the general manager to decide. But I think that the individual who does get does get hurt by this and who has to deal with this inversion is the manager who um, has to comply with the analytics that uh, drive the game today and also gets in a situation where he has to juggle his bullpen and he's got a lot of tired arms by the middle of August. And you can point to many, many teams in the last couple of years who are sucking wind by the end of the season because their starters haven't gone long enough and they don't have enough innings eaters in the bullpen. Yeah, no, those are great, great points to be made. What, what um, I know we've got a second article. Did you want to get to the New York Post article, Christian Scott? Yeah, real, real quick. Um, once again, uh, when I read these articles, I like to look at and read what, pe- what, what officials are saying, what people are saying about pitchers, pitchers that have been injured, pitchers that are prospects, right? So I saw this article in the New York Post about Christian Scott, who's a top prospect for the Mets. And uh, I'll quote from the article. It said, Christian Scott might not be the first from the Mets waves of young arms to receive a shot this year in the majors, but his ceiling could be the highest of any pitcher within the farm system. A breakout season propelled the 24-year-old scout, Scott excuse me, to crack baseball's prospect list of the top 100 prospects for 2024. So this one caught my attention now. Mets officials credited a delivery adjustment implemented by Scott early last season when he was on the injured list as a factor in his success. Instead of relying on rotation of his upper half, Scott began emphasizing his lower body to examine baseball fastball velocity. So I always my interest is always peaked when I read an article about a player or an organization that says, hey, this pitcher's made some adjustments in his motion because I want to see what adjustments he's made. So I looked at, as a matter of fact, Christian Scott was one of the amateur hurlers I evaluated in the college draft and the MLB draft last spring. But um, I Googled, Googled, I looked at his and researched his motion from the University of Florida, and I took five photos from it in different positions. And then I took his, um, I evaluated his motion post-surgery um, after they said he made some adjustments. And these are, his motions are identical, absolutely identical. His phase movements, his timing, his collapsed arm, et cetera, et cetera. There was no difference at all in the motion he had at the University of Florida with the motion he has, he implemented post-surgery. So I had to, you know, once again, if I had an opportunity to speak to somebody, I have two questions. Um, I, I don't know what Met officials are speaking to regarding adjustments because these throwing motions are identical. Um, the th- and, and the reality is when they talk about his ceiling, the only thing I can say that what has increased or what his ceiling is, is that his, his ceiling is, is, is the odds of him getting a significant arm injury. Um, now, this is really important because I looked at the comment they made, and he is moving his lower half. We talked about this before. There's a, there's a stark difference between pitchers moving their lower half 
okay, and using it effectively. So the way he moved his lower half in Gainesville, okay, is exactly the same the way he's moving his lower half with the Mets, okay? So he and the Mets may feel he's emphasizing his lower half, but that doesn't mean he's maximizing his use of lower half. In this case, it's not even close, right? And even the comment that I read about not recognizing and, and not relying on the rotation of his upper half and, and, and emphasizing his lower half, put aside the fact that he's, he's not emphasizing and using his lower half, but there's, an, is a, there's a significant reason and an important factor as far as rotation of your upper half. That never changes, okay? That has to be maximized. What well, has to be maximized in a sequential timing is the maximizing of your lower half. Because as we talked before, the energy to throw a ball or hit a ball, okay, or, or an object is created from your feet to, from the ground up. So that maximum energy for your feet is created through your lower half, okay, then transferred to your upper half rotation and then to your shoulder until the release of the baseball. So I have no idea, zero idea what the Mets officials are, are talking about and why Christian Scott believes he made adjustments in his throwing motion. He has not made a single adjustment in his throwing motion. Okay. That's not a, I'm not criticizing Christian Scott. I'm just saying in, in lieu of the many articles I've read and we talked about, I find it interesting that even with pitchers and I have about a, I have a file of these pitchers who have said they've made adjustments or they said they needed to make adjustments in their motions. They have not made any adjustments whatsoever. So I don't know what they're looking at and I don't know what they're being told. In the meantime, we keep seeing the same things happen to these young, promising players. It's uh, and again, that's I got asked a question this morning: uh, why? Why they have people understand why we're doing this podcast series and uh, why we continue to do what we do? And I have two concerns. One is there's there's smart baseball people that not could not could just contribute, but make significant contributions and move the game forward, like yourself. That that should be embraced in the game right now. And for some reason, people have a hard time gra- grabbing on to what we're all saying. And then second, this generation of kid, um, we're, 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 we're damaging an entire generation, maybe more of, of baseball talent. And, uh, you know, baseball has a funny way of, of, uh, correcting itself and fixing itself. I have faith in that, but, uh, boy, um, your stuff is eye opening every week and it, it just kind of hits you right between the eyes. And, I'm wondering what others are looking at that aren't grabbing onto it. I know our audience of 65,000 does, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm challenging everybody today. Pass it on to one friend, this podcast that just doesn't get it. Forget the ones that don't get that they don't get it. Pass one that doesn't get it, that I, that's on the fence. So we can encourage one person at a time here. So I, I, I love that take on it. Um, well, you know, to your point, um, and, and, you, and you brought it up with the young, with the young pitchers. You know, when, when I bring it up an article like this, uh, I'm not pointing fingers at Christian Scott um, or, or the Mets, to be quite honest. Um, what I am is uh, asking questions based on, once again, my research. As an example, um, Matt Allen has had two Tommy John surgeries. Uh, years ago, I wrote the Mets. Um, there was a former pitcher who I saw a video, and he was lauding 
Matt Allen's uh, throwing motion and said how clean it was. And he couldn't wait to see what he was going to be able to do uh, in a Mets uniform at City Field. Um, and I wrote the Mets and said, that's not going to happen for, for a while. So, you know, tying into the Christian Scott and with other organizations that I've evaluated with pitchers and their injured pitchers or their comments about adjustments they've made, I look and go, okay, um, I could overlay Christian Scott's um, throwing motion on top of Matt Allen, and they're they're pretty identical. You know, there's there's uh, variations in the melody, but I like to say as a as my tribute to Led Zeppelin, the song remains the same. Um, and there's other pictures in the Mets organization I have evaluated. So when I when I wonder and I and I look at an organization, and we talked about connecting the dots and 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 putting the pieces of the puzzle together, I've had a young pitcher who's had two Tommy John surgeries. And so that tells me, as I mentioned in the last podcast, they believe that how you throw the baseball has nothing to do with being injured. Zero. It's all about velocity. Now, once again, I hate to go back to that point, but I go, if he's really only throwing 92, not 98, why are we hanging our entire wardrobe, not only our hat, on velocity? Once again, that's a separate subject. So... That all ties into your comment. This is all about, for me, young pitchers, the 14-year-old pitcher, the 17-year-old pitcher, the 19-year-old pitcher. And we talked about some of the anecdotal stories I've had working with pitchers. It's about what they see, what they read, what they hear, and most significantly, what they're being taught because their instructors teach via what they see, what they read, what they hear they're being taught. And that's my concern. And that's why we're doing these podcasts. And that's why I've invested a lot of my time researching and evaluating because I want to connect the dots. I want to show a young pitcher, not only that when I work with him and he improves his command and his arm health, his arm feels exponentially greater, that I can show him as a, as a convincing factor also, go, listen, this is how you throw. This is your throwing motion. I'm going to show you, I could show you 550 photos, but I'll just show you 20 to 30 photos of pitchers who have been injured, who have had Tommy John surgery, who throw exactly like you do. Exactly. Identical. And I go, that's my issue. That's why we need to work. Now, after that, and there's a um, agreement or there's an understanding and we work together and he's uncomfortable or doesn't want to continue working with me, that's fine. Um, I've done my homework. I've done my, you know, presented my, my facts and I feel I have responsibly presented this to the young man or the parents and they have a choice to whether they want to go forward or not. But I will reemphasize again that every pitcher I've worked with from 14 to 22 years old, who has made some of these or all of these simple, and I'll underline again, simple adjustments, they have improved their arm health exponentially, and they've improved their performance via command, via movement, and yes, velocity. Um, so that's that's why we do these podcasts. And that's what I'm interested in, in communicating to young pitchers and that you need to change how you're training, and you need to change how you look at your development. 
and how you build a foundation from the ground up. No, I, I get asked often because they'll hear how we speak about the game on all 14 of our shows. Um, we are open to everything. I mean, we, we look at everything that affects, whether it's a grassroots player, or professional player, we, we want to take it into account. But uh, the question I often get asked is, why is there such a divide right now? And, um, you know, the, the biggest point I make to people is that there is a gap right now between the analyst and the operative. And in that gap lies the friction that, that people are seeing. And the analyst right now owns without, you know, I'm using air quotes, the power in, in the game and it's trickling down. And we have to keep uh, talking. We have to keep getting it out there, keep showing people and not get discouraged by it because we are, we're all after the same thing here. We're trying to make the game better, but I do believe the game will correct itself over time. It's just a matter of how many people will be marginalized how many generations of kids will be be hurt um, through this and, and how many w- won't understand how to play the game. But you're fixing that with your video, series, with your web series right now. Um, would, would you be ready to or do you want to uh, share an update on? Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll, um, I'll address that. We, uh, we've tightened everything up and, and the website will be available um, as of Thursday. And for, for the audience out there, um, what I've done is put together a website that includes my video series um, and online instruction. So the, the um, videos, the um, excuse me, the website kind of takes you through my program. Uh, it includes professional endorsements. It includes uh, performance endorsements, uh, what pitchers are, are saying or have said about uh, their results working with me on the athletic pitcher and the adjustments they made. Um, so what I wanted to do and what I am going to do is provide an opportunity for people to purchase this series. And I have an individual package, um, that's priced at $125, which I thought was more than fair. Um, it's pretty much depending on where you live, almost the cost of a one hour pitching lesson. Uh, and with that, you'll get all, all five, um, parts of the, um, uh, athletic pitcher series. And you'll also get tap into tap, which is more of an instructional series, and you will get one free um, online instruction. Then I also priced it for the same price for coaches. And the only difference there is that they'll get three, three free online instruction um, for three of their pitchers. And then I have an additional purchase plan where you can provide and you could sign up and get one online instruction or you could get a package of three. So um, there's something for everybody. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I would hope that the audience would go to the website, take a look around, uh, peruse it and uh, see if there's something that they feel uh, would help them uh, become, a, 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 as, as I say in the website, uh, improve their performance uh, and improve their health. I think this could be a wonderful series. And we, we certainly endorse it here on Real Voices of the Game and specifically the arms race. So we'll be giving everybody updates on that. And There'll be links on our show notes to uh, Jim's website as well to make purchase of the the video series. Uh, yeah, the website is uh, athleticpitcherseries.com. I'll have that in our show notes today for the audience. And we're going to have some, some pitchers. Uh, I'm actually going to be communicating with a couple of guys this week. Uh, Rob Samarino, who is a 42-year-old former professional pitcher who's had uh, two Tommy John surgeries, I believe. I have to talk to him more Wednesday. But he's interviewed with Kevin Kernan as part of uh, Kevin's articles. And he's talked to our scouts, our resident scouts on the 
a network and he actually met with Justin Orenduff, who has been on our show a couple times and is a very bright uh, guy in the pitching game, former professional pitcher, top draft pick himself, who had an arm injury due to, to training. And he's dedicated his life to making sure that doesn't happen to others. Uh, we have R- Rob at this point in time in his life has redesigned his throwing motion through the help of a doctor and uh, is going to explain it all to me Wednesday in a call. And he throws 101 miles an hour right now, but can't get a look from an from a uh, MLB club, which is ironic because they promote velocity and, uh, and he's been injury free for a long time, but uh, curious to hear his story a little bit deeper and, and report back to you and maybe connect the two of you and, and, uh, and John Stuper, former Yale coach, former big league pitcher, teammate of John, Jim Cott uh, is going to, we're going to talk a little bit on Wednesday, just some conversations about what we're doing, pick the brains of some guys that have in and around the game of baseball for a lifetime and um, all, all interested in hearing what you have to say as well. So got some good, good people behind you, Jim. It's, it's, uh, in my opinion, it's about time. Well, you know, it's funny. I was telling a friend of mine who's uh, followed me with this six-year journey uh, that started, as I said, last podcast with 20 minutes of video. And I related it. I said, listen, I'm, I'm climbing Mount Everest here. Uh, six years ago, I was at JFK um, in front of the TSA. And I said, right now, I'm probably about a mile and a half, two miles from base camp. Um, made some progress, but I, I have a long way to go. Um, don't know whether I'll get there, but it's 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 part of the journey. That's how, that's how I kind of look at it, right? Oh yeah, no, it's and it's it's step by step. It's like anything else. If you're if you're willing to take the hits and you're willing to keep your eyes forward and and lock in on what you want, and, and again, the, the hits are the hard part. The the things that usually knock people out of the race. If you can do that, eventually you're going to get where you want to go. Um, oh yeah, it's we you know we've talked about this before. Uh, part of my goal, especially the last three or four years is to have a dialogue with somebody in the room, for those of you who have uh, seen Hamilton, um, because I'd like to know if I'm looking at this correctly. Um, if not, why not? Uh, why there's an alternative way and why the um, analysis I have is is not applicable to, to pitchers. Um, I'm, I'm open to a conversation with anybody. I'm not, I'm not afraid to be told I'm wrong and not afraid to be told that I need to look at it differently. Um, I will state that with my research and let's put it this way. If I didn't have the experience and success I've had working with pitchers over the last 10 years, then we wouldn't be having this conversation because then it would strictly be me evaluating pitchers who have gotten injured and I wouldn't have a but to that. Well, the but for me is that the pitchers I've worked with, regardless of their athleticism, regardless of their size, regardless of their velocity, their velocity, regardless of their age, if they've worked to make these adjustments, I've had many who've made the adjustments during the season. I work with them in between starts. Uh, I, whatever, you know, I, I, we play catch. Um, and, uh, some, I work in the off season. If, if I didn't have that success, then I would have nothing that I could speak to that says, I know these adjustments work. I know they improve health and they improve performance because the bottom line in that respect is that if it improves the performance and health from my perspective um, of a 18 year old who throws 85 to 86, I would like somebody to explain to me why it would not improve the health and performance 
of somebody who is 26 who throws 95 to 96. They would have to explain to me from an evolutionary standpoint or just the kinetic makeup or body makeup that an 18-year-old can do something that a 26-year-old can't do, or an 18-year-old would benefit from something that a 26-year-old would not benefit from. That's kind of the other part of that conversation. Uh, and that's, a, that's curious for me because, like I said, I'm not looking to reinvent MLB, and I'm not looking to change the way any pitcher in Major League Baseball throws. I think I can help somebody, but they're all big boys. My concern, once again, is what the 18-year-old sees, reads, hears, and being taught. Can't be, can't be any more direct and simpler than that. If only everybody else would be so measured in their approach, uh, it would be a much uh, safer place for the kids to play. What about, you mentioned uh, read. What, you, you always have a couple of recommendations for books. I know you're well-read. You're constantly researching, uh, looking for answers, thoughts, uh, and just smart baseball. What, what do you got for audience this week? Oh, and yeah. I, I thought I'd uh, another uh, another week of baseball books, and I'll move on to uh, some other topics that I like. But uh, I have an author of the week. I've read three of her books, and they're really, really good reads. Uh, it's Jane Levy. She wrote the book, Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy. And I really love the book because she told the story in between the innings and interspersed it with his perfect game against the Chicago Cubs. So she would, you know, give the first inning and then go back in time and talk about Sandy, go to the second inning, go back in time, whatever, tell some stories. And once again, I like reading some of these stories that are well-written because there's some great anecdotal stories and comments from the players and his peers. You know, like I think it was Johnny Roseburg, Rose, not Johnny Roseburg, some hitter went up and said, hey, how's he throwing today? And the hitter came back to the bench and said, you could, you could bring a, a piece of furniture up. It wouldn't make any difference, right? Um, so that was, a, that was a really one of the better baseball reads I've, I've read in the last, I read it about four or five years ago. The other one she wrote about then was The Lost Boy, Mickey Mantle. And that was a really good read on Mickey Mantle. Um, not, you know, part of his baseball career, but what made Mickey tick, um, his, his life outside of the game. I think she did a really good job in portraying Mickey Mantle. Uh, and the last one I read that she wrote was the big fella was a great story about Babe Ruth and it's called Babe Ruth and the world he created. So for any, any baseball fans out there, I would highly recommend, uh, one or all of these books that were written by Jane Levy. Sorry, Jim. I had myself on mute there. I uh, was was mentioned that I have read the Sandy Koufax book and the Mickey Mantle book. I love them both. I have not read the Babe Ruth book yet, but got a birthday coming up in the spring, so I'll maybe request that on my Kindle. Let the kids see it on their Amazon accounts. But love Jane Levy as well. I think she's a great great writer. Um, love the podcast this week. I think our audience, very sophisticated audience, sixty four thousand, should be at sixty five by the end of the week. Uh, they love smart and certainly you deliver with that every week. Um, want to mention, I did not mention at the beginning, um, of this show, we, we, again, last week I said it, but we've been, uh, nominated for podcast award with sports podcast group for our production group, all 14 of our podcasts. And 
we are waiting. I, I believe we got nominated for our Coach and Kernan podcast as well. So great work by you guys to, to get the attention of the powerful podcast world. That is our news nowadays. So um, we're, we're making some noise. Um, well, we, we'll certainly tune into your website. Make sure that the audience uh, gets on Jim's website. The address will be in the show notes as well. And if you need to reach Jim for anything, like uh, one of our listeners did regarding the radar gun to go full circle, how do they reach you, Jim? Uh, J-A-C tap T-A-P, J-A-C tap two at gmail.com. Perfect. Um, yeah, G- yeah, gmail.com. That is correct. Yep. And we uh, love our guys over at Jaw Bats too. RVG at checkout, all caps, gets you a discount on anything and everything they have. Tanner, uh, my son is using the, the maple bat now, the M110 model. He uses it lefty and righty, loves it both ways. And then uh, Jeff Fry, first base hit down in fantasy camp. He put it on social media, a double with the Jaw Bat. So it must work. Jim, thanks so much for the show today. I appreciate the time you put in and the energy and you're making a difference. Well, I, I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's great working with you. And uh, I, uh, hopefully I can make a difference. Uh, I don't know if I'm making a difference right now, but my goal is to make a difference. And uh, to do that, I need to keep on, as I say, forging ahead. <laughs> I'm a firm believer of the audience of one theory. As long as I'm listening and you're listening, we're in good shape. We, we oh, said- yeah, you know, it's funny to that point, And I've said this before, um, this has been a fun journey. And it does keep the left side of the brain working. Uh, it's, it challenges me to look at things differently or to when a door is open to walk through, when it's closed to find another door to open. But if I, and I've done this in the past, I've said this in the past, if, if I work with a young pitcher and they come back to me and I, or their father comes back and says, hey, that was great. You really helped him. Um, he feels better about himself. Uh, he's got more confidence. His performance has improved. That's what it's all about for me. So whether I get one of those or 10,000 of those, um, I'm not concerned. I'm just looking to move the ball forward. And if I can impact somebody's um, life that way or, or their, their career, more the, more the better. That's it. One kid at a time. That's it. And uh, with that, episode 419 in the books with the arms race, Jim Colonel, uh, Dave D'Agostino. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Let's get us up to 65,000 by the end of the week. And I love the phrase you had, the song remains the same. I think that's going to be our theme song from now on.